Welcome. My name is Thomas Steininger. I welcome you to Radio Evolve, our webcast for consciousness and culture. I am uh, very honored to have with me again Igor Kofaev, a spiritual teacher um, of uh, uh, different backgrounds, if I may say so. But um, Igor, first, welcome to our show. And Thank you. Uh, Great to be here. I, I invited you because I experience you as someone who tries to up-level the spiritual discourse, let's put it that way, because there are many ways to understand spirituality and uh, there are many ways how a spiritual discourse has also established itself in our modern, postmodern uh, context. But there is also a way how we have some comfortable relationship with that. And I ex experienced two things. First, that you try to go somewhere where the comfort is a little bit left behind. And second, there's several ways how we talk about spirituality, either the usual kind of Christian, progressive Christian ways to talk about religion, spirituality, or they're very much Buddhist oriented or Advaita oriented but you at least have uh, one root in your work in what is known, not to too many, but to some people as Kashmir Shaivism, which is a particular form of an Indian tradition or some even say a culmination of Indian traditions that is on one hand deeply transcending worldliness, I would say, but on the other hand, not not even not avoiding worldliness, but really uh, trying to enlighten or to trying to evoke worldliness in a transcendent way. And it seems that maybe in our time, in our whatever times we are living right now, uh, but there's something where spirituality in some way tries to find back way to our world culture. Uh, it is something that... Um, I think can help to understand what kind of spirituality can be really needed in order to uh, find answers, personal answers, but also cultural answers to the times that we are living in. So first, let's talk about uh, spiritual Shaivism. What I see there that there is a, a response uh, there was a historical response to the deep findings and the deep revelations of Buddhism in this northern part of India that seems to be relevant also for our times. Is this something that you would agree with? And why plays this sort of spirituality a role for what you do as a teacher? Mm. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a relevant, very interesting question. In fact, uh, it's in itself serves as a, an ongoing dialogue within the given culture because when we speak about Kashmir Shaivism and the way it stands in the rich cultural, spiritual cultural background of the entire Indian subcontinent, what we really um, witnessing here is that perhaps a kind of uh, 
polemics between the relationship of the what could be called spirit as ultimate reality that what transcends it all and that eminence of the world so it is the relationship between that what is not coming from anywhere not subject to time and space something which is all there is whatever the term then in any given culture may rise in response to define that undefinable otherwise ultimate reality and the world manifestation that what we partake by virtue of being humans so this polemics they are as old as as far as we can see millennial cultures of india itself these dialogues and, and we can see also how it was coming in and out of the focal point of attention so when it comes to a particular moment in time in history to which you referred to when some of the principal um, teachers of kashmir shaivism some of these masters who have left this undeniable um, mark by virtue of their greatness because some of them were great polymaths of their time Let, let's say someone like the 10th century abhinavagupta he was known as someone who hasn't just contributed to the field of philosophy he has also contributed to the field of rhetorics to the field of aesthetics to the field of culture by large and a left mark also on the culture as one of the greatest sages uh, in recorded indian history of course he hasn't began that process we could even say that he continued what was started by another sage two centuries before the famous adi shankara who in the 8th century almost took it up on himself to literally we could say drive out all the madhyamika and theravadian uh, based buddhist uh, teachings that have took a strong hold in indian culture at the time why that is we should leave that to scholars really and those who are interested in the um well, perhaps repercussions of what it and how it impacted indian culture certainly the spiritual landscape of indian culture for the next 1000 years because that's the legacy of adi shankara and abhinavagupta in the 10th century continued and contributed greatly to further further expose certain holes we could afford to hold them holes because they are referred to by the aforementioned sage as inconsistent statements especially when it comes to the understanding of the principal concept of shunyata or shunya or the void so one of the of course uh, fascinating propositions that were made by kashmir shaiva sages was precisely on the nature of the relationship between the world and the 
utmost reality which transcendent here represents. I deliberately will avoid using the Sanskritized terms, except maybe bringing one or another at, uh, at, at certain point, simply because we will do injustice if we speak about this without bringing these two uh, fundamental uh, categories uh, represented by the terms Shiva and Shakti. Because this is where the understanding really begins. This is where the cornerstones of this profound philosophy really lays everything for it to, um, well, for something that one can lean in terms of one's grasp of this otherwise very rich, very rich philosophical perspectives. So that Shiva stands here for the absolute, that which transcends it all. So in other, words, in other words, Shiva is beyond manifestation. Shiva is all there is. As the Shiva Sutras declare, nothing exists that is not Shiva. Shiva here is that ultimate reality, one without a second, because it's a monistic philosophy. We should immediately um, bring that out so that everyone who um, listens to this now understand that this is spoken from a monistic perspective. It's a truly non-dual philosophy. So that Shiva here represents that one without the second. And Shakti is seen nothing other than the very power of Shiva, the very, very self-reflective quality of what Shiva represents. And Shiva represents here this awareness that term, which is now became extremely important in the context of modern spiritual dialogues for the past, let's say, 30 years, that awareness is all there is. The non-duality uh, in particular took an extremely uncompromising stand, that movement, global movement that swept across Anglo-Saxon culture, many, many Latin American, and of course, across Europe, since the early 90s, the non-duality operated with that term awareness. And awareness here represents that very aspect of the transcendent. So in uh, terms of, and from the point of view of Kashmir Shaivism, Shiva represents this ultimate reality. But he, as it were, is not alone. Shiva and Shakti are inseparable, indispensable aspects of that same reality. Mm -hmm. It's just two modes of manifestation or two modes of being. Shiva is that what remains as that absolute, we could say absolute silence, that which transcends it all. And Shakti here represents this eminence everything that is here to know, because it is known by virtue of direct experience, because Shakti herself here ontologically plays the very power of Shiva, and the power of Shiva is not separate from Shiva. Shiva is always, always expresses himself as that very power of his own, which is Shakti. So if we introduce these two terms, that will suffice for us to talk 
and uh, we don't need to even go into any other categories, but in plain English language, we could speak of Shiva as that pure awareness. And we can speak of Shakti as that self-reflective awareness or the power to reflect its own light back onto itself. And that light that is reflected back onto itself is the very reason for manifestation in the first place. So in other words, Kashmir Shaivism takes this position that this world is not some kind of hallucination, appearance, illusion, or even something which takes as a dream within awareness, something that awareness dreams to itself, but it doesn't have substance. Contrary to that, from the point of view of Kashmir Shaivism, this very world of forms and phenomena down to the gross elements is nothing other than manifestation of Shiva or manifestation of awareness. So in other words, the true statement of that monistic perspective is reinstated again and again in that um, yet again, one of the axioms, one of the sutras that um, even the earth Right, the grossest elements in the unfoldment of this, you know, progressive unfoldment of the manifestation is nothing other than awareness. I'm deliberately dropped now the term Shiva. So, in other words, everything is awareness made out of awareness. All that what we may speak of today in terms of um, scientific implications of giving it uh, intellectual understanding. It dismisses it all. And paradoxically, uh, this is where the most avant-garde science meets full circle with that same monistic understanding. Because from the point of view of the most avant-garde scientific breakthroughs uh, ushered by the age of quantum understanding of the world, there is no such thing as matter. There is no such thing as things. Nothing is made of nothing. Or nothing that what we perceive here has reality of its own. It's all but emptiness. It's all but that what we speak of as awareness, if we are to give that positivistic perspective. Of course, um, maybe I'll just take a breath for a moment, but uh, to go back to what you were saying, the position that Kashmir Shaivism took was extraordinary because it proposed simultaneously as it was uh, exposing some of these inconsistencies in the teachings present in Madhyamika and Theravada schools of Buddhism. It also brought to question the very postulates that Adi Shankara, the aforementioned polymath, sage Adishankar came up with, who is known as also someone who crystallized Advaita Vedanta into what we know it to this day. So that created these two streams, two philosophical streams, or two embankments, whichever way we want to look at it, of the same river of wisdom when it comes to Indian spirituality. And Kashmir Shaivism 
run in parallel, but it exalts a very different perspective on the, perspective on the world. Not only it reconciles that irreconcilable aspect uh, of how can this reality sit in opposition to the absolute, but mm -hmm. it reinstates this just to, that there is no such thing, you see? Mm -hmm. It's only, only awareness. Let me connect this to a conversation that I perceive is going on on a global scene of uh, modern uh, spiritual uh, interest. Mm -hmm. In the last uh, couple of decades, because I perceive a shift. Uh, you, you were talking about uh, Advaita taking over the, not only the Anglo-Saxon sphere, but, but also uh, definitely Europe uh, and the, the developed world. And everybody knows that Buddhism, uh, since uh, several decades, is having uh, a huge influence also on uh, modern uh, American and European culture. There was something started in the 70s that was a spiritual search that really went, let's talk it in a more image form, to India. Uh, looking for transcendence and also what you called the utmost reality and liberation and uh, uh, the Advaita movement and, and, and many of the Buddhist uh, teachings were addressing that. In the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, there was a shift in that sense that, let's put it that way, people are not so much mo uh, moving their interest uh, to India, they are more moving their interest to South America or the indigenous wisdom. And there, there's still a spiritual discourse going on, but this, the discourse changed. It's shamanic interest. It's uh, uh, the relationship to life, to nature, uh, to uh, uh, spirits, uh, to uh, uh, life force. And I think this is an interesting development. And at the same time, there was the... Um, argument or uh, accusation of spiritual bypassing in, in the Advaita movement that basically that yes, or maybe all uh, very fun, uh, fundamental what uh, was brought here, but people were, were leaving out uh, the world we're living in and the life force. That, is it right uh, that there's something where the depth of the utmost reality that is addressed, at least in the best of Buddhist teachings, like in the best of all spiritual teachings, uh, and uh, the realization that we are living in a living universe uh, that is real somehow, which I would say is a part of what the attraction of this movement to Latin America uh, as a spiritual culture is right now, that there is a synthesis in this uh, Shaivist impulse that brings this together in a way that does not avoid the utmost reality and at the same time does not avoid uh, the powerful aliveness of the life impulse itself that people uh, look for when they go, particularly to the shamanic culture. Yes, uh, I mean, I would say that um... There was always healthy interest towards that more experiential side 
uh, even going back to the counterculture of the 60s and the 70s, when some of these very charismatic, very large, larger than life figures, um, and how it is even spoken in terms of uh, Buddhist language, when Dharma made its way from East to the West, right? That whole kind of slogan that in order for the Dharma to be preserved, it wasn't enough just to uh, remain within the oikumen of a given culture. So therefore, these uh, teachers began to establish their communities and this great um, dissemination of knowledge took place from India, from China, and from Japan, and other parts of the Far East, as we have witnessed. Um, at the very same time, there was also uh, this brewing interest in uh, connecting to that other reality by other means than meditation, by other means than you know, for more traditional, so-called maybe in comparison to more traditional forms of spirituality that came from the from the Orient. So we know that uh, Timothy Leary was conducting experiments with all the psychedelics on a really organized level. You know, he, a group of young people partook in that experiment on a at the clinical level. We're not just a bunch of young hippie, you know. <laughs> people willing to experiment. This was an experiment conducted with the funds and sponsorships. And, and of course, this is where um, other modalities were uh, being brought to the light of, let's not uh, kind of be afraid to use that term, uh, for the benefit and possibility to taper with of the Western consumer. So spirituality was offered in every form and way. And that what you remark now, that kind of uh, maybe return uh, towards this more connecting is with nature, as you have put it. But that's only one perspective. There is a, a less, uh, maybe uh, a less altruistic and less uh, how should we put it? Less maybe driven by that desire to connect to the realm of the, um, that where we are all linked and interconnected. A lot of people interested in these indigenous forms of spirituality, and it is commercialized for that reason greatly today, because uh, it affords a very quick or at least it promises a very quick shortcut, like in all these ayahuasca ceremonies, you know, uh, people no longer satisfied or no longer willing to go through meditative practices because this may sound uh, too daunting and may take too many years and too much commitment, let alone giving oneself to uh, psychology and, you know, all that kind of help over another intermediate person who would help us to bring to the surface what now increasingly became uh, very, very in the focal point of spirituality, the aspect of trauma. 
which we could also say kind of resurfacing. There was a lot of talks about trauma uh, not long after the Second World War, perhaps uh, around the same time as the counterculture came, when all this um, PTSD kind of uh, reports and you know people, young people would come back from uh, from the combat from the war zones, you know, refugees, people who have uh, suffered tremendous kind of impact of this. And then that brought immediately uh, the wave of that kind of self reevaluation because people for some times wanted to uh, give it a rest that what culture, Western civilization in Europe has experienced during the uh, Second World War, then it became increasingly important again. So we know that that also produced that interest towards how do we heal collective traumas? So the rise of these indigenous forms of spirituality, I think should also be viewed in terms of what offers, what being offered there as a quick cut. At least this is my experience of working with a lot of people who, uh, at some point, we're very much enamored with this kind of possibilities that going to uh, an ayahuasca ceremony will put an end to a lot of their personal um, traumas and dilemmas that they've been dealing with, which turn out to be a wishful thinking in many cases. We know that... Uh, and I talk about it a lot. I talk about it a lot in my work in terms of the limitations offered by these kind of shortcuts when it comes to spiritual breakthroughs, because anything that we introduce from the outside into this complex lab of chemical responses, of what balances all this here in that extraordinary way, because that's what this is, this is a lab of consciousness of human being. The nervous system of a human being is very much where these processes take place. And therefore, all this, what produces certain hormones into the system, is contributing from the point of view of neuroscience, either to our misery being locked into that same cycle of uh, chain reaction responses, which fires certain brain cortexes and issues the qualitative hormones only to, only to continue. Or the circuit is broken, and that's what the true breakthrough is really about. So this, what indigenous spirituality offered here, though very valid, we should not and cannot talk about it without seeing the less attractive, less glamorous side of this, because it is also driven very much by Yet again, that consumer-oriented perspectives of having these shortcuts. And as I said in my work, I always remind those who want to know, what about microdosing, that term that is prevalent in um, California, you know, taking these uh, various kind of substances, you know, that uh, part of it is an LSD, let's say, you know, like all this psilobacin, psilobacin and other enhancing, so to speak, an activity of our nervous system substances, but in a very, very small dosages on a regular basis. Even that, even that 
is nothing in comparison to what our human potential here represents when we are able to produce these hormones, produce these qualitative responses and reactions in our body because we are embedded to it by nature. This is the way we are designed. So this is also maybe to create an arch now why I personally was very, very, um, well, over the top, over, you know, in terms of discovering uh, the teachings of Kashmir Shaivism, because for me, it was a post-factum. It mm -hmm. served as a confirmation of what I went through and what I inherently knew, even as a young man, uh, throughout my life in terms of the, some of the unique aspects of which maybe mm -hmm. we can speak a little later in our today's discussion. So maybe uh, to ask you directly, you said it confirmed something. What did it confirm? Well, um, first it confirmed the validity of all this, what I went through in terms of this innermost realizations, innermost insights. Uh, one such profound insight, which was, again, it's very difficult to give it to language because I would have to, as it were, trim that experience down into a way of how to speak about it. But if I were to try and I did try on several occasions to speak about it, sometimes even at the uh, risk of being misunderstood, misinterpreted, even when in uh, the audiences where people were not just run-of-the-mill kind of uh, your usual sort of, you know, but more of a, I would say, people who would have that already possibility to understand this. So this insight or this rather experience is that that whole what is considered to be the world experience itself was pouring out of my own self the very light not experiencing this or that spiritual um, what can be spoken of in terms of rich rich uh, or what rather falls under the category of rich spiritual experiences profound revelation of inner sounds, inner lights. No, but at some point, the very light which becomes the world was pouring out of my own self. So in other words, it wasn't witnessing the light. It's not partaking in the light, seeing light here, light there, but actually experiencing that an utter outpouring of the light, which was outpouring from my own self. So in mm -hmm. other words, that centrality of the I, the centrality mm -hmm. of that pure subjectivity of which I begin to speak more now these days. For many years, I kind of avoided to go directly into this. That pure subjectivity was realized directly. And against very often a very perplexed uh, spiritual perspectives on what that I represents here. That I, 
I, which stands here for the utmost realization of one's essence. Because in some perspective, that I meant to be dropped away, that I meant to go somewhere. So mm-hmm. there was this still a dilemma. There was this question mark. If the I meant to go, mm-hmm. then whom this experience happened, whom this all that what was realized. And when I found this confirmation, very uh, simply stated by these sages uh, in some of the crucial expositions, which lay the very foundational grounds of the teachings of Kashmir Shaivism, it confirmed there and then. In fact, in the uh, critical analysis of uh, Madhyamika, it is Abhinavagupta who very simply delineated that there is nothing other than experience. Every experience is made out of subject experiencing object. In other words, that would stand there as a supreme trika Shaivism. The trika Shaivism is a scholarly term for Kashmir Shaivism. That trinity without which there's no experience. That trinity made of the observer observing and observed. And consciousness here undergoes that fragmentation for the sake of experience. And I, I is the only agency that remains in the ultimate realization. And when Abhinavagupta was trying to uh, explain this to those who say that they go into this complete void of shunya or nothingness. He simply stated that it is nothing other than experience of deep sleep. It is not different than that. And yet when one comes out of the deep sleep, one declares, I did not experience nothing. I didn't see anything. It was blank, nothing maybe pitch black. However, that experience occurred to someone who now reports that experience back. Mm-hmm. So in other words, in a very systematic manner, in that manner of introspection, in that correct inference here that Abhinavagupta applies to that discourse, there is nothing other than experience. Because how can we speak about something which cannot be experienced. It's an oxymoron. And if one contemplates on that, one will quickly realize that that is so. Because if there is a state beyond that, then who will come back home to tell us about it? You are in the middle of a a, a kind of a discussion that's going on. Uh, I mean, it's definitely going on for centuries, but it's also going on for decades. Because when there's a spiritual aspiration right now, and when it goes beyond psychology, uh, one word that is prevalent is the word ego death. And with the word ego death, uh, very much what is understood is letting go of the eye. And of course, this is understood uh, very much in an 
Buddhist framing uh, in, in, in Buddhist understanding as, as this is uh, part of uh, how we understand deep liberation at this point. And part of the uh, this, this discussion uh, 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 that, that, that you hear is um, people kind of uh, defending a Western understanding of the agency of the eye. And uh, in that also kind of uh, having a skepticism against uh, kind of practices like meditation, letting go, Eastern practices, any kind of uh, so-called uh, uh, transcending uh, meditative practices, because you, you lose your agency in that. And on the other hand, you, you have a, a, a deep understanding of liberation being ego death and reaching emptiness, reaching wholeness. There's something where what you're describing uh, is both of it or none of it or something third. There's something where uh, this uh, conversation through the ages, and it seems it was also at that time a conversation between Buddhist practitioners and uh, uh, Shiva, Shakti, Shakti Buddha practitioners, uh, tries to find a different answer. Oh, how so? Well, I mean, how how do you relate to the Buddhist experience? This is just kind of a, I call it a dream state. So did Buddha, Gautama Buddha, just dream? Or is it a different understanding of the same depth of transcendence, a different way to, to relate to what the ultimate reality is about? Well, what you posited here is quite a kind of a, what you've woven together, these few strands. Um, will require to talk about this, of course, so as to clearly give that uh, understanding what do we mean by ego? and how that is figured in a spiritual discourse. I'm not sure it would be uh, helpful in trying to posit the, uh, or give us uh, give the assessment to the Buddha's teaching because to begin with Buddhism extremely rich. And even from scholarly point of view, there were several different phases in the life of Buddha which are known where once Buddha would arrive to a certain system of thought that he would um, posit as the basis of his teaching. Because let's not forget when Buddha, uh, that canonical, very well-known classical uh, encounter where Buddha was invited to teach and he um, refused several times this is you know it's one one cannot teach this what the buddhahood is about in other words nobody will understand and that uh, in uh, uh, legend goes so that you know the, the whole mythology surrounding it goes that 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 there was this almost uh, convincing him so what if out of entire village or entire you know 
10,000 people, you know, only um, 1,000 people will understand. So no, 1,000 people will not understand. What about, and so the, narrow, the, the number will go na down, narrow and narrower. So finally, what about if out of 100 people, only one person will be able to understand? Would you teach? And then, of course, this we know that moment of a repose and kind of uh, decision-making. Okay, well, maybe for the sake of just one, uh, it's worth doing. In other words, it was doing because that's what it is really about. But then inevitably, realizations of that kind would need to be dressed into formal teaching. So we know during the lifetime of Buddha himself, teachings undergo transformations, often at the cost of departing from the previously held forms and doctrines. Buddhists may even argue to this day at the level of the scholarly argument of what may comprise and consist of the authentic and real true teachings of Buddha. And I may be kind of on a thin ground here to speak about this because I'm not a scholar and I don't even uh, consider myself to, to be um, fit to speak about this because this is not really my primary interest. However, Buddhism, and it is known to all, scholars and non-scholars, operates with that concept of non-self. And that concept, that notion, concept of non-self is not at all something which came with Buddha. That concept of non-self can be traced throughout the entire spectrum of all Indian things. All systems of Indian philosophy throughout the time had this concept of the non-self. There is this, the position that Buddha took, we could say, was radically different to that Atma, that what stood for the soul, that Atma. But it does not mean that he denied the teachings that existed before him. We know that Buddhist teaching was simply a response uh, to the necessity of time to purify that field, perhaps from making the teaching exclusively in the hands of the custodians, in the hands of the Brahmin caste, to open it up. The same, in the same way, the popularity and widespread of tantric teachings were revolutionized and changed the spiritual landscape of India back in the days, because that very same principle of democracy that Tantra propagated, that everyone is Shiva, therefore there's no such thing as being defined by caste, which is very strict when it comes to the understandings of a more orthodox uh, branch of schools of Hinduism. So therefore, um, going back to now what, you know, that concept of ego stands here for. There is a term among spiritual teachers, if you will, and there's a kind of a way of how it's spoken, let's say, behind the scenes, when it's simply stated as his or her teaching doesn't go beyond the ego. What does it mean is that the teaching of so-and-so doesn't progress beyond pointing towards the ego or limitations of the ego. But ego in itself never held 
accountable for the calamity of ignorance. This is a gross misrepresentation of any teachings. Ego in itself is nothing other than yet another term invented to point towards something. It may be extremely helpful in certain initial phases and stages of spiritual evolution. Simply to someone who is a complete layman, there's a gathering, let's say, taking place on a veranda, and someone is passes by and catches a few lines and drops the daily uh, activity, comes to partake in that. Maybe they need to hear something about the ego simply because that may drive some truth home. But when the ego or emphasis on the ego as a limitation is being brought again and again, this is counterproductive. Because ego is not at all what here causes this sense of separation. This is not a correct perspective. And uh, therefore, Kashmir Shaivism, and not just Kashmir Shaivism, in, in fact, there are many spiritual uh, traditions and schools where ego is viewed in a different terms. It's simply part, part of that whole conglomerate, a whole conglomerate, the whole setup. Even the orthodox schools of Indian philosophy, which deal with the concept of intellect, ego, mind, and five senses, altogether comprises the so-called eight. They don't speak about the ego as being the scapegoat of why we find ourselves in this calamity of uh, a life rendered and our experience and our sense of well-being being impeded by that limitation of the ego. Not at all. But in Kashmir Shaivism, it takes it to its apogee. It speaks about that in terms of that universal egoity. Because it doesn't even allow the possibility of speaking about human ego as some kind of entity. Because one of the postulates of Kashmir Shaivism is rooted in the understanding that Shiva, Jiva is Shiva. In other words, individual is absolute. Individual is already an absolute. So that perspective, the ego here is not a fixed reality of our perception, but it's, love, but it's rather a membrane, membrane of our identity. Let me reinstate it. In other words, it's not something there as an agency fixed within that if we drop that or if that dies somehow, then, then we are opened up to the marvel of that total freedom. If that was the case, I think we would have much more uh, freedom-ridden people because, because on every case of depersonalization, or every case of depersonalization should be equated with that state of freedom, which is not at all the case. There are many people who have no idea who they are. In fact, they are fractured in terms of the understanding of whom they happen to be and what is the experience and what its meaning. But that doesn't render them into that state of coveted state of enlightenment. So from the point of view, again, just 
going back to that, the cause in division, in duality is elsewhere. It's not in the limitation of that, what is spoken of as egoic or ego consciousness. Cannot be. Instead, it's spoken of in terms of universal egoity. Why? Because it's linked inextricably to the irreducible I-ness of experience. And the goal of Kashmir Shaivism is in the way to arrive to that inextricable nature of pure subjectivity, which is all there is. Because there is nothing other than that. There is no other experience. Everything is only experienced firsthand here. It cannot be someone else's experience. It can only be experienced firsthand. And all there is, is that experience. All there is, is this dynamic tension between subject and object. So ego being blamed and kind of haunted and gone after in modern day spirituality is a kind of a peculiar thing that happened in my view. It just happened. It's just happened. Maybe uh, some key speakers, teachers in not so distant past stressed that and it took its hold. But on the other hand, if you go to other spiritual circles where that was not so, you would not find it to be at all a predicament. The spiritual emphasis and work lays elsewhere. So therefore, in my work, I always posit people very quickly so they don't waste energy at locking their horns, as it were, you know, with that which in itself is not a predicament, so as to free energy for it to work elsewhere. Igor, thank you very much for this conversation. (laughs) It's a great pleasure, Thomas. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me and for suggesting this topic. Thank you.